0: Father, we thank you for the Sabbath that we have to come together and to study and to learn and to worship and I thank you for all of the things that we have learned and I pray for a special blessing now through these next presentations that all of the things that we've been discussing will come together and things will be very clear about the experience that we need to have and of the walk that we need to have and just bless me now as I share a few words, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, the this particular presentation is entitled, Christ and His Righteousness, and it's based on Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, which, before I get into the actual verses, I'm going to read a couple of statements, and for my last two presentations, I'm going to just use my Bible and read a few quotes from my notes. Sometimes it's helpful rather than than to just look at everything on the screen to get your Bible out, open up the Bible, and look at the verses. So that's what we're going to do the last couple of presentations. But I'm going to read to you a statement from Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, page 299. Those who engage in the solemn work of bearing the third angel's message must move out decidedly and in the spirit and power of God fearlessly preach the truth and let it cut. You know, sometimes... And I'll I'll keep reading the quote as we go here, but sometimes I feel like Some of our churches have turned into social clubs where everyone wants to be made comfortable and we're afraid of offending anybody and sometimes open sin even comes into the church and we're so afraid of standing for Jesus and for his truth that we're afraid to preach the truth and let it cut. But those who engage in the solemn work of bearing the third angel's message must move out decidedly and in the spirit and power of God, fearlessly preach the truth and let it cut. They should elevate the standard of truth and urge the people to come up to it. It has been lowered down to meet the people in their condition of darkness and sin. It is the pointed testimony that will bring up the people to decide. A peaceful testimony will not do this. The people have the privilege of listening to this kind of teaching from the pulpits of the day. Ellen White's not saying that this privilege is a good thing, but she's saying you can go to the pulpits of the day, you can go to the church down the street and hear messages that will make you feel comfortable. But notice what she says. But God has servants to whom he has entrusted a solemn, fearful message to bring out and fit up a people for the coming of Christ. There is a great difference in our faith and that of nominal professors as the heavens are higher than the earth. Again, that's Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, page 299. Friends, we are Seventh-day Adventists, and we have a message to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. And now is not the time, I think I said this last night, to be lowering down our message, dumbing it down, and making everybody feel like everything's fine, when everything is not okay. We have a message that is designed to call people to come up to Christ. And that is the message that we need at this time. So as we consider this message of Christ and His righteousness, keep that in mind. Now I'm going to read to you a statement from Early Writings, page 254, which connects to Revelation chapter 14.12, which is the topic for the presentation right now. Early Writings, page 254. The third angel closes his message thus, "...here is the patience of the saints." Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So notice this. Ellen White very clearly equates Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 with the third angel's message. I've heard some people in the third angel's message after verse 11 with a discussion of the mark of the beast. But verse 12 of Revelation 14 is part of the third angel's message. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then, continuing, she says, As he repeated these words, he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary. The minds of all who embrace this message are directed to the most holy place where Jesus stands before the ark, making his final intercession for all those for whom mercy still lingers and for those who have ignorantly broken the law of God. So what we're going to do in the next few minutes, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. There's three key components. The patience of the saints, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. That is the conclusion of the third angel's message. Now, in this symposium, we haven't really spent a lot of times specifically talking about the first part of the third angel's message, but verses 9 through 11 make it very clear that if you worship the beast, and the beast has been identified in the previous presentations, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And the message goes on from there. But then, after you see the, the fact that those who worship the beast and receive his mark, they will be destroyed by God, you then see another group of people. Here is the patience of the saints here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Ellen White says in another place, this is Selected Messages, volume 2, page 384, the banner of the third angel has inscribed upon it the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So this verse is crucial in the book of Revelation. There's lots of important verses in the Bible, but certainly Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 is important. Now, why is this important? You know, we, we have talked a lot, a lot about theory and knowledge, and all of these things are important for us to understand our prophetic landmarks. Revelation chapter 14 is the, chapter 14 verse 12, it is describing a group of people who have the experience of the third angel's message. You can have a knowledge of the third angel's message, but Revelation 14.12 is describing people who have the experience of the third angel's message. And if we want to go to heaven, and if we want to be with Jesus, this is the experience we need to have. Amen? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, what makes... The third angel's message so powerful. The third angel's message, of course, is the final message of warning to the earth. And, of course, as we've already heard, in order to properly understand and experience the third angel's message, we need the experience of the first and second angel's messages as first experienced by the the Millerite movement in the 1840s. But the third angel's message will be the final message and the final experience and the final warning just before Jesus comes back. And it describes a faithful group of people who have the patience of the saints and they keep the commandments of God. They keep the faith of Jesus. So what makes this such a special experience? You know, as I've studied the third angel's message, which as we also heard from Testimonies, Volume 9, page 19, in, a, in an earlier presentation, we as Seventh-day Adonists are to allow nothing else to absorb our attention. As I've studied this message, I found something very fascinating to me about the third angel's message as described in verse 12 of Revelation 14. And that is that in these three elements of verse 12, of Revelation 14, we find something very interesting that we can connect to, and I'm going to show this to you. And I want to start off by turning to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to look first at the patience of the saints, then we're going to look at the commandments of God, and then we're going to look at the faith of Jesus. So there's a special group of people at the end of the world who are described as having the patience of the saints. And Ellen White says in Great Controversy that God's people... Who go through the time of trouble must learn to endure weariness, hunger and delay. What do you like What's your character like when you are tired? Hungry? You miss an airplane connection at the airport. What's your character like? Here is the patience of the saints. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with what? Patience. It's the same word in the Greek as Revelation 14. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there are modern translations that say, here is the endurance of the saints, or let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because in the Greek, it's the same word. And so when it says Jesus endured the cross, in English we don't say he patience the cross. That's bad English right? But it's the same meaning. Jesus endured the cross, meaning he had patience. So when Paul says, let us run with patience, the race that is set before us, Jesus demonstrates that patience in his experience on the cross. In fact, Ellen White says a manuscript releases volume 21 i believe it's page 39 it might be 37 hanging on the cross christ was the gospel and one of the things that jesus demonstrates on the cross is patience or endurance jesus endured the cross you know in hebrews chapter 10 it says and this is starting around verse 35 for you have need of patience and I think it's 36, for you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God you might receive the promise. For yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. So there's this concept in Hebrews chapter 10 and you connect it to Hebrews chapter 12 that while we are waiting for Jesus to come back we need patience or endurance. And the question is with the race that has been set before us How is it possible, as Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 says, here is the patience of the saints. How is it possible for us to have such patience? And that's where Hebrews 12 gives us the answer. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus had patience on the cross. Now, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. It takes faith to have patience when you can't see the end from the beginning. Jesus is a demonstration to us on the cross of how to have endurance or patience when you can't see. ...through the present circumstance. Ellen White tells us that Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. But because of the joy that was set before him... ...those who would be saved because of his death on the cross... He endured what came his way. So if Jesus is our example, if he endured the cross and we are to run with patience the race that is set before us, sometimes we can't see the end from the beginning. But for Jesus, the joy that was set before him was seeing those who would be saved in the kingdom with him as a result of his death on the cross. For us, the joy that would be set before us would be being with Jesus when it's all said and done. And when we see Jesus on the cross as the author and finisher of our faith, enduring what he went through, by faith we can trust in God to give us patience through the fiery trials of this present life. So when we look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, we spe- see a special group of people, and they have the patience of the saints. They keep the commandments of God, and they keep the faith of Jesus. And what we see is that if we want to know how to have patience, look at Jesus on the cross. So that's point number one. Let us run with patience, because Jesus endured the cross. He had patience on the cross. He demonstrated this patience and endurance that each one of us will need to be part of this special group of people described in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. But this special group of people, they not only have the patience of the saints, it says that they keep the commandments of God. Now, to be technical here, it doesn't say that obedience is imputed to them. You get the point? Yes, we all needed Christ's imputed righteousness, but Scripture teaches that through the grace of God, God can give us the power and the grace to obey Him. So it's not just a theoretical obedience here. This is a loving obedience motivated out of our love for God, and this group of people at the end of time keep the commandments of God. They not only have patience as Jesus endured the cross, they run the race with patience set before them, but they also keep the commandments of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting to me as well. We're going to go back to Jesus as our example here in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 7. Hebrews chapter ten verses five through seven. This is speaking of Jesus here. And Paul is getting to the point of the New Covenant in verses sixteen and seventeen, but in Hebrews chapter ten, verses five through seven we read, Wherefore when he cometh unto the world speaking of Jesus, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, this is Jesus speaking. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now, Paul is quoting from, the, from Psalms chapter 40, verses 7 and 8, when you get to Hebrews 10, verse 7, when it says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So let's go to Psalms 40, verse 7. And Psalms 40, verse, verses 7 and 8 is a messianic prophecy. And we see more clearly what it means to do God's will in Psalms 40, verses 7 and 8. Notice what this messianic prophecy says. This is a psalm of David speaking of Jesus, which Paul uses in Hebrews 10 to describe Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. Then said I... Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me. Notice verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now, is anybody going to debate that Jesus had the law of God in his heart? No. Everybody agrees that Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, which is why he could be a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish or spot when he died on the cross at Calvary. So, Jesus came to do the will of God, which is God's law in his heart. He delighted to do God's will, and his law was in his heart. So Jesus kept the commandments of God. In fact, not only did he keep the commandments of God, he delighted to do so. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, well... (laughs) I guess I'm going to have to keep the commandments if I want to go to heaven. Oh, man. I guess I'm going to have to stick with my wife. I can't look around. Man, I guess I can't rob banks. I can't kill. Man, what kind of fun is this? I mean, that's one way to live your life, and then you can rigidly not do the things you're not supposed to do. But you're not doing so because you love Jesus. And there's a big difference. Jesus delighted to do God's will because he loved his father. Now, the amazing thing is, you go back to the book of Hebrews, Jesus came to do God's will, which is God's law in his heart, and the new covenant in Hebrews 8.10 and Hebrews 10.16 is God writing his law into our hearts and minds. Now, what that tells me is that those who surrender our lives to Jesus when we allow him to write his law into our heart and mind, we will learn to delight in keeping God's commandments. We will be thankful that God has given us victory over coveting or over lying or cheating or stealing or whatever the the case may be. We will have allowed God to write his law into our hearts and minds. Having a new covenant Christian experience and we are following the example that Jesus has given us. So when you look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. And again, the, the title of this message is Christ and His Righteousness, based on Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. How do we have patience? Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the cross, who had patience on the cross. But not only that, He came to do God's will, and God's law was in his heart, and he delighted to do God's will. And if we allow him to write his law into our hearts and minds, which is the new covenant experience, we can, by the grace of God, also keep the commandments of God. And in fact, when you look at Hebrews 10, it says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. When Jesus is hanging on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, he is a demonstration of what it means to keep the law of God. So again, we go back to the cross. We see Jesus enduring the cross, demonstrating patience on the cross, and that is our example for patience when we come through the trials of life because whatever your trial may be, it's not going to be any more difficult than what Jesus endured on the cross. And when it comes to obedience, we can look at Jesus hanging on the cross, realizing that he trusted in his Father and submitted to his Father all through his life so that he could come to the cross as a perfect sacrifice and as as a demonstration of perfect obedience. So when you look at God's last-day people, they have the patience of the saints and they keep the commandments of God. So evidently, God's last-day people have learned to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of, of their faith, our faith, seeing how he endured the cross and how his life of obedience led to his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Not only that, it says they keep the faith of Jesus. statement from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 168. The faith of Jesus has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner it has not occupied the prominent position in which it was revealed to john faith in christ as the sinner's only hope has been largely left out not only of the discourses given but of the religious experience of very many who claim to believe the third angel's message and what i believe she's saying here and i mentioned this last night we need faith in jesus and we need the faith of jesus and we're talking about overcoming and i believe that's very important but again if you're so focused on what you have to stop doing but you're not sure that you've been forgiven you're not going to stop doing those bad things trust me we have faith and confidence in the forgiving grace of jesus so that He is a perfect Savior who has forgiven every one of our sins. As Psalms 86 verse 5 says, God is good and ready to forgive. He is wanting to forgive. He's ready to offer that forgiving grace to us. But He also wants to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us. As 1 John 1.9 says... But there's a special faith experience. So being justified by faith, you believe in what God has done to forgive your sins, but there's also the element of believing what God can do to sustain us moving forward by grace. The faith of Jesus. To the Laodicean church, in the Laodicean message, which I will also mention in the next presentation, but I'll mention it here the last thing that Jesus says to the Laodiceans before he concludes with he that hath an ear, the promise of overcoming to Laodicea is a bit unique compared to all the other churches. Verse 21, Jesus says to the Laodicean church, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame And I'm set down with my father in his throne. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you can overcome. That's the promise of Jesus. And he's saying, you can overcome the way I overcame. Even as I also overcame. So Jesus was an overcomer every day of his life, from birth to the cross to, to the ascension. Of course, after the cross, it wasn't an issue, but jesus was an overcomer here on this earth and first john chapter 5 verse 4 if you turn there shows us what is involved in overcoming first john chapter 5 verse 4 says for whatsoever is born of god overcometh the world And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So there are two key elements necessary to overcome. It's to be born of God and to have faith. Jesus overcame. He was born of God. And he had faith. Jesus says in the Gospels, I can of mine own self do nothing. And he overcame And he promises that overcoming victory to all those who will have faith. But if Jesus overcame through faith, and we are to overcome as he overcame, then it would stand to reason that if we overcome the way Jesus overcame, we would have the same faith that he has. Does that make sense? And it's crystallized in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by the faith of Jesus. Jesus demonstrated his faith and his overcoming while he lived here on this earth, And he is promising that when the old man of sin, of self, in our lives is crucified, when we surrender to Jesus, we can have the same overcoming experience here on this earth. Now, let's go back to Revelation 14, 12. Because to me, this... Made the third angel's message alive come alive to me in a way that I had never seen before, and this actually happened to me a few years ago when I was living in Trinidad and I was doing the morning devotionals for a whole week. I did a week of prayer for them at the Adventist Hospital, and as I prepared for these talks, it just hit me in a way I'd never seen before. Revelation chapter 14:12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You want to know why the third angel's message is so powerful? The reason why the third angel's message is so powerful is because Jesus is the demonstration of the third angel's message. Jesus is the demonstration of patience. He endured the cross. Jesus is the demonstration of obedience. He delighted to do the will of God, which was the law of God in his heart. He kept the commandments of God. And Jesus is the personification of the faith of Jesus. So if you want to know why the third angel's message has so much power, it's because it is a message that describes the character of Christ as seen in the lives of his saints. The third angel's message is designed to produce the revelation of Jesus Christ in those who believe that it is possible to have such an experience that's the power of the third angel's message the power of the third angel's message is not in focusing on the mark of the beast now listen it is important to talk about that and there are adventists who are saying we don't need to talk about that anymore look we need to warn the world of the deception that is coming but the greater power that will motivate people to not receive the mark of the beast is not to try to scare them away from hell The power of the third angel's message is to motivate people to become like Jesus. To say Jesus has demonstrated patience on the cross. Jesus has demonstrated obedience on the cross. Jesus has demonstrated faith on the cross because he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. And he has now ascended to heaven and is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary working to develop a group of people who will have the same experience. That is the power of the third angel's message. And so when you talk about the third angel's message, yes, there is theory in the third angel's message, but if you can remember that the third angel's message is a description of the life of Jesus, then you will see why it has so much power. And that's why we as Seventh-day Adventists have been called to give this message to the world because nobody else out there totally understands completely the patience of the saints, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus the way we do. And yet we somehow haven't totally gotten it yet. And God is still working with us in his long mercy. He's long-suffering to us. Now, in the remaining moments of this presentation... I'm going to show another connection that is often discussed about the third angel's message. Because it's often discussed how justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. And I'm going to read the statement. Review and Herald, April 1, 1890. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Now, usually people stop right there and say, see, justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. And that's fine. But she doesn't stop there. She keeps going. She says, the prophet declares... And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message, and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. Notice, Ellen White says, yes, justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. But she also says, when you experience the third angel's message, which is justification by faith, then you will see Revelation eighteen which is the latter rain under the power of the loud cry, where an angel comes down from heaven, having great power. And then she concludes by saying, Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message, and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. Now let me say this. Imagine what the church would be like if we became serious about our walk with God and surrendered our lives fully to Jesus so that we ha- have the patience of the saints, we kept the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Imagine how much more power our preaching would have to the world. Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message because the third angel's message is a demonstration of Jesus. And it's connected to the message of justification by faith. Now, you may ask, how is that so? Well, let me give you a few things to think about here. In the New Testament, the first place we see this concept clearly described is Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is the everlasting gospel of the first angel's message. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, or to everyone that has faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now why is this gospel so powerful? what makes the gospel so powerful the word power here is the word dunamis which is similar to dynamite so paul is saying uh, the gospel is powerful it's like dynamite it's going to blow things up it's so powerful it doesn't matter if you're a jew or a greek if you have faith you will experience its power well what makes the gospel so powerful verse 17 tells us what makes it so powerful for therein for in the gospel The righteousness of God is revealed. Now notice, he doesn't say the righteousness of God is declared. He says the righteousness of God is revealed. And the book of Revelation is all about revealing Jesus. And the gospel is about revealing Jesus. And the reason why the gospel is so powerful is because the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the just... And the Greek word for just is dikaios, which can also mean righteous. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you're righteous or just and you're living by faith, you have righteousness by faith or you have justification by faith. Is that not true? So here's what Paul is saying. You, You want to know why the gospel is so powerful? Because the righteous who live by faith reveal the righteousness of God because of their faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of those who have faith, of the just who live by faith. So justification by faith is a demonstration or a revelation of the righteousness of God, of his character. And you may say, okay, how is, how is that so? Let me give you now another illustration of Christ. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, as Christ is on trial before Pilate. Pilate receives a message from his wife. Again, it's Luke or, sorry Matthew 27, 19, where Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with this just man. And the word just is the Greek word dikaios. It's the same word as the just shall live by faith. Pilate's wife says of Jesus, have nothing to do with this just man. But we also find some other illustrations. Go to Acts chapter 3, 14. Acts chapter 3, 14. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, it says, and this is actually Peter speaking in his Pentecost sermon. He says, but you denied the Holy One and the just, Notice the word just is capitalized there, but that word in the Greek is dechaos, speaking of Jesus, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. So here Peter describes Jesus as righteous or just with the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1 to say, The just shall live by faith. And then in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers jesus is the just one and again the word in the greek is the jesus is the righteous one jesus is the just one and here's what is so powerful about the gospel when we have faith to believe in the power of the gospel to transform our lives, God promises us that we can have the righteous life of Jesus through faith. And yes, there is a legal declaration that makes it so, but when we have justification by faith, Romans 1.17 says, the righteousness of God is revealed. So when we experience justification, we experience... The righteous life of Jesus by faith. Ellen White says in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 366, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. So there's a surrender involved. The Christian world has often wanted to believe that we can be justified while not surrendering. That's a false righteousness. Righteousness. The righteousness that God is trying to give to his people at the end of the world is a complete righteousness that is a revelation of the character of Jesus. Now let me point out one other thing here as we start to bring this to a close. A couple more things. Interestingly, the concept that the just shall live by faith is found only three times in the New Testament, and it's written in all cases by Paul the Apostle. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. And yes, Paul is the author of Hebrews. That's just a side point. But in Hebrews 10.38, the just shall live by faith is connected to the experience of God's people waiting for the coming of Jesus and of having patience. But Paul is quoting this concept, this phrase, the just shall live by faith, from the Old Testament. Do you know where he's getting that from? Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 2. Turn there to Habakkuk 2. This is very fascinating to me. Habakkuk chapter 2. One of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And interestingly, chapter 1 is talking about how the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are coming and they're threatening to overrun God's people. Aren't we living in a time spiritually now where God's people need to be worried about being overrun by spiritual Babylon? So Habakkuk 1 is talking about the Chaldeans or the Babylonians coming to overrun God's people. And in chapter 2... Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So in other words, Habakkuk is is saying Babylon is coming to destroy God's people and there may be a reproof that God's people need to hear in order to stand against Babylon or we will be overrun by Babylon. Does that make sense? And God's people at the end of the world need to be willing to be reproved by God unless we might be overrun by Babylon as well. So what happens? Verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Now what's this vision speaking of here? If you go to early writings, it's very clear that this is the vision of the 2300 days that the early Adventists were told to write on tables. They wrote them on the charts. And it says that he may run that readeth. That, that connects to Daniel chapter 12, where it says, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So this is the vision of the 2300 days, which describes, again, the rise of the Second Advent movement. Well, what's the message that the Second Advent movement needs to hear? Verse 4. Remember, they're going to be reproved. And this is the reproof that Adventism needs to hear. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. You remember the the statement where Ellen White says, justification by faith is the laying of the glory of man in the dust? You know what one of Adventism's greatest problems is? We're a proud people you know how many letters i have after my name you know how many years of school i have had to do what i do now look if you do it in the right way education is a blessing but we start to take pride in who we are professionally and personally and of the things that we have accomplished and we start to think that god couldn't finish his work without our abilities and God is saying of Adventism, behold, your soul, which is lifted up, is not upright. You need to have your glory laid in the dust so that you can experience justification by faith, which is the third angel's message, which is a righteous life by faith, which is a demonstration of the righteous life of Christ by faith. Christ was not a proud man, and neither should Adventist be. And so when we look at the third angel's message, Jesus is the personification of the third angel's message. Jesus demonstrated patience on the cross. Jesus demonstrated a perfectly obedient life throughout his life, culminating with his death on the cross. Jesus demonstrated faith throughout his life, culminating with his faith, the faith of Jesus on the cross, where he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb, but he chose to trust in God anyway. And that is to be the experience of God's last day people, running with patience, the race set before us, keeping the commandments of God, having the faith of Jesus, experiencing justification by faith, where our glory is laid in the dust. And the last point I'm going to make is that when you look at Revelation 14 after verse 12, Yes, the special resurrection is mentioned immediately after that. And then verses 14 through 20 describe the great harvest. There's the harvest of the wheat and the harvest of the grapes. And the harvest of the wheat is the harvest of the righteous. Now, you've noticed that I've connected everything from verse 12 of Revelation 14 to what Jesus did on the cross and connected it to the third angel's message. Interestingly, Jesus, in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, says, speaking of his experience on the cross, the hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. Clearly that's speaking of Jesus' death on the cross. Verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus is prophesying here that his death on the cross will be like a seed that produces a great harvest. And the harvest is in the likeness of the seed that was planted. So Revelation 14.12 already shows us that Jesus demonstrated patience. Jesus demonstrated obedience. Jesus demonstrated the faith of Jesus. So do you want to know what the harvest looks like in verses 14 and 15 and 16, the harvest of the wheat? It's a harvest that looks just like Jesus because he was the seed that was planted on the cross. In Mark chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, we read of when the harvest will be harvested. For the earth bringeth forth a fr- fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn and the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, speaking of this harvest, we read, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So the husbandman, which is Christ, is waiting for the fruit to be ripened so that he can harvest it. Now, I'm going to read this statement from Christ Object Lesson 69, which kind of t- ties all of this together with the harvest and of the experience of Revelation 14, 12. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel, quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Notice, if all who profess his name, were bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the harvest would be ripened. You know, I think as Adventists we have a problem. We have become complacent, but we've also become accepting of being so worldly-minded that we've lost our purpose for existence. So we live like the world six days a week and we're successful like the world six days a week and we comfort ourselves with the idea that we're ethical and we're moral and we're not robbing banks and shooting people and we're trying to raise our families rightly and yet our main focus is to make money and to have a successful career and to be well thought of in society, but we still come to church on Sabbath and at least... Pay our dues, so to speak, by doing what we're supposed to do by coming to church on Sabbath, when really the motivation for our life should be the advancement of the third angel's message and of surrendering our lives to Jesus. And as we see Jesus being the demonstration of the third angel's message, we become motivated to surrender our lives to Him so that we can become, through His grace, a demonstration of the third angel's message. So, in closing of this message, the harvest will be ripe when we as Seventh-day Adventists experience the third angel's message, and we will experience the third angel's message when we see Jesus for who he is on the cross, and it motivates us to surrender our lives completely to him, so that his loveliness and his character will be seen in us, so that his righteousness through us will be demonstrated to those who are around us. So that is our calling, amen? So I'm going to offer a word of prayer to close this presentation father we need christ and his righteousness our righteousness are as filthy rags but we're thankful that you have promised that the gospel can be so powerful it's like dynamite it will blow up our rock hard hearts that are so sinful and polluted and can turn us into the image of jesus give us faith to believe that you can do this in our hearts and in our lives And whatever it may be that we're holding on to in our lives that's keeping this from happening, may your love for us on the cross through Jesus' death give us the motivation to be led to repentance so that you can work out your life through us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse